Hey, my name is Michael. For those of you who have never met me before, I'm the lead minister of the New Life Family of Churches. We have a church in Brisbane, in Coolangatta, and Rabina. And uh, we, we kind of, we're these three churches that believe we're on the same mission and vision together. I, I love leading with Scott. Scott's a brother and a dear friend. Scott and Georgie, we've walked a long journey together. And, um, and it's just so stoked to be here whenever Scott invites me down to preach. It's an honor because I know the quality of preaching you usually sit with. Um, so today you may fall a little bit more asleep. That's okay because next week Scott's preaching. So come back again then. On that note, hey, we're in a con- crucial conversations and I need God's help. Would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God. As we enter into this dialogue today, we thank you for the beautiful day it is, for the beauty of creation around us, that as we finish today, I pray that we'd be propelled to enjoy that which you have created. But before then, we sit under your word. I pray would it, would it form us and shape us and never return void. There are some who are new to church today. God, speak with them, meet with them, encounter them today. And I pray the same for us who have been in church for a while and speak with us. May we encounter you afresh. Less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I have two boys, Archer and Banner, the ages of three and one, which if you have boys those age or children that age, you know that three hours a night is sleeping in um, for me as a parent at the moment. So if I look a little bit more tired, it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with my son, Archer, who's three years going on 15. And uh, he's kind of got this new lease in life. I love my boys, love hanging out with them. They're great to wrestle with. We play Lego and stuff, but I just starting to get a bit of an attitude now. Now he's three years old. He tells me what he thinks. Now, if you've got a three-year-old boy, you know they get these surges of testosterone. So what happens is Archer will be playing with Banner. They'll be like playing Lego or cuddling or something. And suddenly, Archer just gets this surge of testosterone he doesn't know what to do with. And so I look over and he's like picking Banner up and like planting him on the ground with his head. And Banner starts crying and Archer's like, it was an accident. And I'm like, that was not accidental. And I'm like, come and have a chat. Why did you do that? He's like, I literally every time. He goes, I was just excited. I'm like, that's, you, I don't get pulled over by the cops. Like, why were you speeding? I was just excited. That's not the way this is going to roll. So there's that moment. And so Ben is off with mom, getting conjoled, like, you know, comfort and stuff. And I'm like, Archer, come with me, and we're going to go have a chat on the couch about gentleness. He goes, no, I don't want to. I'm like, oh, okay. You thought this was an option. Um, Archer, come with me to the couch. He's like, no. You're annoying me, Daddy. Go away. (laughs) Am I? Am I annoying you? Am I? So usually we end up on the couch together with him screaming and wailing and me like holding him. Be like, Archer, you have to have this conversation. We want to talk about gentleness. We want to talk about kindness. I don't want to. I always get to this point where I'm like, it's not about whether you want to have this conversation. You have to have this conversation. And I realize that in the struggle between us, sometimes that's the struggle we have with God and our discipleship, right? That there are sometimes these conversations where we're like, I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. And, and God's like, yeah, but we, we, we need to kind of talk about this over here. And so having said that, that's why we launched into crucial conversations. Jesus, when he walked this earth, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your body, all your mind, and all your strength. We believe that Jesus wants us to submit our fullness of our lives to him for formation. But we also know that when Jesus rocked up on the earth, he didn't walk around and take a democratic vote about what he would teach on. And go, hey, what do you guys want to hear about? I'm happy to talk on anything. More often than not, he walked up, went into the temple, he saw what was going on, and he taught what they didn't want to hear, but what they needed to hear. This is the way of Christ. And so I say that to you because when we kind of came to this series called Crucial Conversations, we didn't take a vote. We're like, oh, what do people want to hear on? We, we prayed together as a team. We looked at what's happening in our culture. 
questions we've heard from you, but questions we've heard from the world. And we said, okay, God, what are, we, what are you calling us to speak into in this moment? Maybe this is not something you want to talk about today, but we believe this is stuff we need to talk about. And that's so important for us. And so maybe you're over here and be like, oh, I want to talk about identity and sexuality and all this stuff. And I'm going to let you know, we don't sense that that's, now's the time for that in our church. We want to talk about relationships next year and Jesus and how he intersects with all that. But today, we're going to go on a different direction. I want to take you back to 2005. Hopefully, most of you were alive in 2005. But there's this moment in 2005 where this movie trailer comes out. And this movie trailer comes out and these words splash across the screen. If you love your children. I was in grade 11 back then, so I'm like, well, that's not me. Don't have any children to love. The next line was this, if you love your family. And I'm like, ooh, got my attention. The next line is, if you love anybody at all. Like, it's really just like a broad, like, you know, umbrella. I'm trying to get everybody they can. And then, like, the next thing was, like, this will be the scariest movie you have ever seen. I'm like, holy smokes, what's going to happen next? The next screen that comes on is the face of a man named Al Gore in front of a large crowd of people saying this. I don't know if you remember this. He's like, the earth is hotter than it has ever been. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is scary. What? Why? Why is this the scariest movie of all time? And then the, the, the montage that follows next is floods, earthquakes, natural disasters, fires, and things blowing up. And, and so was the trailer for this movie called An Inconvenient Truth. Does anyone remember that movie coming out, Inconvenient Truth? There's, it was one, like he won a Nobel Peace Prize for this stuff. I remember sitting there as a young man and being like, what, what is he on about? And wondering, how are we meant to engage with this? Friends, today I want to talk about creation. I want to talk about the environment. Now, maybe you've existed in a world like me where we see stuff like Greta Thunberg addressing the UN and saying to everyone, how dare you, to people five times her age, right? And being like, wow, this young 16-year-old, she's got guts. And, and kind of confused, maybe, as to what does it mean to be a Christian? in these conversations. Because I don't know if we do these conversations well. And today what I want to do is going to walk through four things. First thing we want to talk about the objections we have. Why as Christians do we not talk about the environment? Why don't we talk about creation? Then we're going to talk about three questions. Does God care? Should we care? And how should we care? But let's start with the objections. Why do you think Christians struggle to talk about the environment? It's because of these three main reasons. A lot of researchers and commentators believe that it's because of politics, awareness, and burn. We'll get to burn in a bit. What do I mean by politics? Because when we talk about the creation of the environment, I think a lot of people believe that this is a political issue. That another political cycle will come around, someone will start talking about coal, another person will start talking about renewable energy, someone else will say climate change, and we're all like, okay, wow, who should I vote for? And the idea that kind of gets purported by our society is that if you vote for, if you care for the environment, if you care for our world and you believe in climate change, then you will vote for the Greens or Labor. It's like you're, you're a left-wing person, right? You vote over here. Then if you're over here and you think climate change is just a conspiracy theory, you don't really care for the environment, you're not too worried about coal, then you're a right-wing voter. You vote for the Liberal Party. And the problem with that is it's actually a really unhelpful dichotomy. And what it says is, is that your opinion on the environment is driven directly by your political views. And I just want to highlight, I actually think this is really bad bad biblical literacy. Because I don't think that the environment is a political issue. I think it's a discipleship issue. So we're going to go to the Word today. We're going to go to Scripture, not to culture. We're not even going to talk about stats until we confront Scripture. The second thing, the only stat I will mention is this one, is an awareness thing. Maybe it's because we live on the Gold Coast. And man, on a day like today, is it not great to live on the Gold Coast? 
right? You look out, you're like, climate change, like, what? I hope the climate doesn't change. This is amazing. Look at this. This is so good. But we live in this insular bubble so often where we're like, we hear about the earth heating up or things going wrong. And we're like, oh, I don't know really what that means. And is it out there? Is it real? But we forget that we live in a very beautiful part of the world that is protected from a lot of the world's ills. In Madagascar right now, a, a natural tr- tropical pocket uh, paradise, 85% of Madagascar's forests are deforested, which have actually led to their nation being on the brink of starvation and poverty as they chop down trees to produce rice because the world is over-consuming food. And they're doing this, why? Because it's a means of income. The world, is, the demand is going up, but, but they are not saying, they're not seeing economic win from it. They're seeing this economic deprivation. And we sit here and go, oh, man, should I care about that? And we should ask, well, does God care about the Madagascans? So should we. The last one is burn. This comes from a, maybe what I'd say is bad biblical literacy, where it's kind of like we can get this idea of like, well, you know, I'm saved. God only cares about saving souls because, hey, it's all going to burn anyway, so let's ride this thing down. Give me a sledgehammer. We'll help. You know, that, that kind of understanding of we're going to one day leave the earth and go sit on a cloud with a harp and everything will be fine. And I, I actually want to suggest this is a really bad understanding of where we're heading and, and how Christians should participate in the world. And so I want to challenge those three objections, but I want to do it by answering three questions today. Number one, does God care? Now, if you're like me and you're sitting here and you're going, wow, we're talking about the environment and your eyes are glazing over, you're already starting thinking about lunch or maybe you're thinking about going for a surf later, I just want to relate really well to you. Because in this moment, when I got the topic of creation, I was like, oh my gosh, I, what? Oh, why can't I speak about you know, technology like Alex last week? Like, that's it. Like, what? I, I, I was really struggling how to make this something that was interesting. And I had to repent for that. Because as I began to study and read the Word and commentators, God really seized my heart. And so my hope today is not to bore you or put you to sleep, but to invigorate you, inspire you with a gospel vision of what the world could be. Because does God care? Well, I think this is actually answered by a really simple verse in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. This is the foundational verse for us today. I believe this is a foundational verse for how we approach much of the world, including later when we start talking about stewardship next week or when we talk about reconciliation in a couple of weeks' time. This verse should really typify how we approach it. Verse, Psalm 24, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord, David declares, is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all those who live in it. The earth is the Lord's. Friends, there is someone who lays claim to the earth. And the reason why this is so important is we start with this humble understanding. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't own the earth. This is not yours. In fact, the controversy of Christianity is that when you come to follow Jesus, you actually surrender ownership of pretty much all of your life. Your finances, your money, your family, your property. You go, God, all of this is now yours. Why? It's not because God claims it. It's because we return it. It's always been His. See, Christians have this controversial understanding that we are called to live in a certain way. Why? Because we believe in a creator. We believe in an initial causation. That whether you're you know, evolutionary uh, Christian, whether you believe in old, earth cre- in old earth creationism, whether you believe in young earth creationism, wh- wh- wherever you sit on the spectrum of creationism, all Christians believe in this sole fact, God began it all. He did it with intention, he did it with design, and he did it on purpose. Walter Brueggemann says this, the creator has a purpose and a will for creation. The creation exists only because of that will. This is so important. Why? Because to understand how we've got to interact with the environment, we need to do two things. We need to go to something called protology. Everyone say protology. protology. That was just Scott. Let's go again. Protology. protology. This is the study of first things. 
So we need to go to the study of first things. But then we're going to go over here, and we're going to talk about eschatology. Great. Eschatology is the study of last things. And here's my argument. We will understand first things and understand last things so that we won't know how to handle current things. Does that make sense? Know where we came from, know where we're going, so we might know how to live right now. And this is where Christianity is actually a little bit more controversial because it actually does say some things that we don't talk about very much. So let's go back to the beginning, the book of Genesis chapter 1. If you are new to Christianity and new to faith, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is some of the most central verses, chapters in the Bible about our understanding of why we're here and who God is. Genesis chapter 1 talks about how and why God created humanity. God says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. Then God said, Let us make mankind, Adam, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, or the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures and move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Right here, we have the Christian theological understanding of man's purpose and vocation. Some people are saying, hey, what's, my, what's God's will for my life? What's my purpose? What do I need to do with who I am? And here's the first thing I'd say, know why you were created. See, God created the heavens and the earth, and He created it for His glory, that His creative goodness would be known, that we would see sunrises and sunsets and go, this is beautiful. But God created flora and fauna, and then He created humanity. That's really important to understand. Humanity is not equal with other created things. Humanity was created to be over other created things. This is very clear here. He says, I've created you to rule and reign over the earth. Now, why do I say this? Because when we start talking about the environment, we can start to say, well, the environment must be protected just as much as humanity because they're equal and they're not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, humanity was created as more sacred than the environment. But here's the thing. It was created to rule and reign. The Hebrew for this is more synonymous with words such as stewardship and custodianship, which means that humanity was created to be fruitful and increase, not just in number of procreation and creating babies, but also in fruitfulness of the world. As being over creation, we were not created to abuse it, but to bless it. This is so important. We've been given authority to rule and reign in God's stead over creation, that it might be blessed because we are here. A lady named Sandy Richter wrote a great book called Stewarding Eden. I encourage you to, uh, to, to read it. Beautiful. She says this, Yahweh, this is the Hebrew word for God, is indeed the ultimate sovereign. And humanity has been created as his representative to serve as a custodian and steward, enacting the creator's will by living our lives as a reflection of God's image, we have received our authority from the Creator. We rule as He would rule. We are stewards, not kings. This is critical. It's almost like God had an investment property that He built out of His own creative design and beauty. And into it, He placed a people that He wanted to be blessed by what He had created, that we could not do on our own, but He did out of His selflessness. He put us here and said, rent this from me. Be blessed by this. Enjoy it. I created it to function well, and you should enjoy what I have created. So what went wrong? Well, humanity lived in this house, and we decided we didn't like where God put the walls or how he designed things to work. And so we pick up a sledgehammer and decide to do some redesigning of our own. It hasn't worked well. Genesis chapter 3 explains this. And this is why it's so important Christians talk about this. Because I don't know if the world has clear language for this. 
the way, the reason why the environment is the way it is is because of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, what happens? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, who are told to custodian and steward the land, they see a tree that God says, don't eat from this tree, don't do anything with this tree, and they go, I choose to consume this tree. They eat of the fruit. Why? That they might become equal with God. Instead of ruling on his behalf, they want to rule in his place. And they eat of the tree of good and evil, and they fracture creation. Why? Because they choose to partake in it for selfish greed rather than God's beauty and its blessing. Genesis 3 explains to us what has happened to the world and why we are in the place we are. Friends, I don't think you can understand the environment separated from sin. When we see floods in New South Wales, it is not because God is acting wrath on New South Wales and Victoria. That is not good theology. But it is this. It, is, it should be our word and our story that we say that was not the way God created it to be. Why is it this way? Because humanity has fractured creation. When we see natural disasters, we can grieve with God. This is not how he wanted this to be. When you tear down a wall and the roof starts to cave in, you don't blame the constructor. You go, maybe we shouldn't have been tearing down walls. So what does God do? God says, well, I still want my people to inhabit. And, and so we're going to move through the Bible really fast. We're going to go to another scene that happens straight after the Israelites are released out of Egypt. And God sends them into, into the wilderness. But before he gives them the promised land, he wants to let them know how they should inhabit the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 26, we learn what God tells them to do with things that they gain, their crop and their harvest. He says, when you have entered the land that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, you shall take from the land from first of all the produce of the ground that you shall bring in from your land that Yahweh your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where Yahweh God, your God chooses to place his name. What is happening here? He's telling, talking to the Israelites about agriculture. He's talking to them about livestock. He's saying, okay, so you're going to go into this beautiful land. It's going to be abundant. And as you reap the harvest and the livestock from the land, it's what I want you to do. You take the first of this and surrender it and give it back to me in worship. Why? It's because God's greedy. God doesn't need crops. God doesn't need money. He doesn't need lifestyle. What's he teaching the Israelites? He's teaching them their hearts to worship. He's saying, I'm giving you something, but it's still mine. And so regularly, when you surrender a portion of this back to me, you're saying to your hearts, you're this steward. You're not the owner. You steward this on God's behalf. You don't own this. In so many ways, theologians actually talk about this as God's rent. God's saying to humanity, remind yourselves who owns this, that you might not abuse it, that you might take good care of it. See, friends, so we sometimes get like this thing about church. It's like church is always looking for money or time or talent, this kind of thing. And you know why I give? I give because it teaches my heart who's in control. It's actually a form of worship. It's me reminding myself my bank account's not mine. Now, if you're new to Christianity today, that might be controversial for you. But for those of you who have been following the way of Jesus for a while, we know he could ask, and we say, God, I will obey because it's all his. That's how he calls him to enact with the land. Then he goes on. In fact, we go a little bit further, a little bit earlier in Exodus. He actually teaches them the rhythm with which to enact the land. He says this, You shall sow your land for six years and gather it into yield. But the seventh year, I can't read it down the back. I'm going to go down here. It's very small. You shall sow your land for six years and gather it into yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so then that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the wild animal may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In order that your ox and your 
your donkey may rest and the son of your female servant. Always know who laughs there because that means you were reading along. Everyone's else like, why is people chuckling? Because it's got ASS on the screen. <laughs> may rest and the son of your female servant and the immigrant may be refreshed. What's the rhythm here? Do you see what Jesus says? What God's saying to Israelite people? He's saying this. Use the land for your need, but don't wring it dry. Let it rest. And who benefits when we let the land when we let the land rest? Do you see this? The poor and the animals. Do you see here how God built into His system of agriculture a way that the poor and the needy would actually gain what they need? Hey, do this so that others might be able to partake. Do this so that the animals might be able to eat. What's God saying here? He's saying it is not wrong for you to chop down trees. It is not wrong for you to to harvest. It's not wrong for you to eat what you need, but let it rest. He's saying to, to us what Adam and Eve didn't know how to say. He said, learn how to say this one word. That's enough. That's enough. In fact, Scott and I were talking, he was telling me that in America right now, a lot of farmers are actually returning to this, a year, to this seven-year rhythm of letting their land rest every seven years, and their land has become more abundant because of it. I had a farmer come up to me after I preached at Rabina. He was crying. His dad had passed away the week before, but he and his dad had committed to submitting to this agricultural rhythm of rest and, and, and harvest, and he said, we saw much more harvest and abundance in our lifetime than other farmers because we submitted to this rhythm of God. And, and, and Why? It's because this is that the way that we enact with creation in the environment, it should essentially bless the environment by how we use it. That we should be concerned that what is happening in Madagascar right now is we squeeze the land dry because we needed more. Where else have we seen this in our world? Sandy Richter goes on to say this. In sum, the, con- the constitution of ancient Israel taught that the econ- economic security or gro- of growth was not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land. That economic security or growth was not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land. And that the economic well-being would come only from careful stewardship of it. You know, this is kind of calling something more from us as Christians. It's saying that if you want to go back to how God intended it to be, it's that the world should be flourishing with humanity upon it. It should not be crying out in pain. It should be seen and going, wow. It should be becoming more beautiful, more lovely. We are called to be cultivators and gardeners of the world. Does God care about the environment? Yes, he does. And, and I, I, some people come up to me after I preach this and be like, oh, it's great that you know, we hear God cares. But it's also good to know it's not that high on his priority list. Where do you get that? Like people are like, yeah, but you know, there are other things that matter. I think sometimes we prioritize things in the kingdom of God to excuse our lack of action. Yeah, but I'm, I care about Alpha, but not the environment. When someone's a faithful discipleship, you'll see everything rise together. You'll see everything rise together. They won't just, you know, keep speeding and then be nice to their mum. You'll see that they actually disciple, discipleship bleeds into all of the areas of their life well together. This is so important for us. Because maybe you're sitting here going, well, this was ancient Israel. Like, we don't farm anymore. Um, you know, sometimes garden, but, you know, I just go to Woolies, so who cares? Should we care? Or did the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross mean that his blood has forgiven us, and hey, we're just holding out till we go home. Now we're fine. We've got it wrong. Oh, well, it's too late now, right? It's like Al Gore scared us into belief. So we'll just wait until Jesus comes back. Should we care? This guy, a, a, a pastor from America, said this. 
What is left at the end of all things? Did Jesus die for plants? No. Did Jesus die for animals? No. Jesus died for people. And when it is all said and done, the only thing that will be left is the church. This is actually, there's some good stuff in this quote. There's some also really bad stuff. Did Jesus die for people? 100% yes. He came for you. He loves you. He cares about you. But he didn't just die for you that you might live in a burning house. He died to renew all things. This is why he says on the cross, look, I am making all things new. He cares for this. And sometimes we, we, we get over here. And in fact, weirdly I found out in my research, John Wesley was criticized for this. He was, he was massive on it, that we only care about saving souls. That we only care about, hey, let's just get people to heaven. Let's get them across the line. And thinking that that's all that God is, is worried about. And let me be very clear. He's very worried about people coming to know him. Very worried. But he also cares about that which he's called them to live in. Why do we think this? It's because we have this eschatology at times that says that, well, God's going to come and burn everything up anyway. So why don't we just pick up a sledgehammer and help him out? And, and it's, it's, it's not good eschatology, but it comes from real scripture that is actually beautiful to unpack. And I'm not going to do it today, but I encourage you, go read 2 Peter 3, verse 10 to 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 to 3, or Revelation 6, pretty much the whole book of Revelation. Um, you know, but if not if you want to sleep at night, read it early in the morning. And there's this, there's this moment in all these passages where it talks a lot about God coming back in wrath and fire and burning everything, melting things down, destroying things. And this is scripture, friends. So I don't want to say it's not real or important, but each one almost references this thing called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord isn't just a New Testament saying, it's also an Old Testament saying. And the day of the Lord is this future hope of Israel, and it should be the future hope of the church. Because the day of the Lord wasn't about God coming back and annihilating everything. The day of the Lord was God coming back and judging everything, holding things to account for what they were created for, and purging, renewing, refreshing, and resurrecting dead things into life. This is so important for us. Because what you think about what happens at the end of the story will affect how you act right now. And in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we read this, that God doesn't take you away to sit on the cloud, but He's going to install a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to renew all things. We're not going to go sit somewhere and play a harp for the rest of the time. Also, how boring would heaven be if that's all we were going to do? He's going to give us the best sunsets ever, the most beautiful mountainscapes and amazing creation. Why? Because He's restoring, renewing, and resurrecting eating and putting you right in the middle of it. And the reason why this is important, it changes how we live right now. If we're heading to a future where we are actually more in sync with creation than ever before, then we've got to remember this. There's this great scripture in Romans chapter 8 where Paul actually kind of helps us understand how to act now. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that, he cre- that, that cre- the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth to now. What's this saying to us, friends? Saying to us really quite simply this, that we hear creation groaning. Do you know what it's groaning for? We hear creation longing. Do you know what it's longing for? Creation is groaning and longing for this, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. See, here's the truth. The people who follow Jesus should be celebrated and rejoiced in by creation that we are around. Why? Because the cultivators and steward of the earth have returned. 
That's what it's saying. Why would creation be longing for those who are going to set fire to it? I can't wait till some people come to know Jesus because they're going to destroy us faster. That's not what it's saying here. Why? Because Jesus resurrects dead stuff. And he's called us to be about that business as well. He starts with your soul and he'll finish with creation. In about one minute's time, my phone alarm's about to go off. And we're going to pause real quickly and pray for Alpha. It's 11.02 every day. We do that. I don't know if you do that, but I do. You'll hear my phone alarm go off in case you're wondering why we pause and do that. But I want to, before we get there, read you in case you're like, wow, Michael's really progressive. He's kind of a bit left over here. I want to let you know, uh, I'm not going to tell you my political leanings, but conservative, probably right-wing voter Douglas Moo says this. If creation has suffered the consequences of human sin, it will also enjoy the fruits of human deliverance. When believers are glorified, creation's bondage to decay will be ended, and it will participate in the freedom that belongs to the, glory, to the glory for which Christians are destined. Nature, Paul affirms, has a future within the plan of God. It is destined not simply for destruction, but for transformation. And so when we read this, and we hear God doesn't just care about what was, He cares about what is, what, what is and He also cares about what will be then we must ask, how do you think God is feeling about how we're handling his world? How do you feel that God is feeling about how we're handling his world? For instance, when we look at the Pacific Ocean garbage dump, where all the currents intersect in between Europe and America, in between, sorry, Asia and America, there's only rubbish to be found. It's almost like coming home when you told your kids to clean up and it got worse. So you go, hey, listen, there's this grief. When we hear or we hear about the Madagascan deforestation and we hear that there is nations starving because of our overconsumption, that's my alpha time. Are we, can we pray for alpha real fast? We pray at 11. Let me just pray. Gracious God, as we think about your environment, I believe right now there are people in our world that have turned away from Christianity because they think Christians don't care. Put those people in our hearts right now that we would ask them, hey, have you done Alpha this week? And for those in this room who are signing up for Alpha today, may we come to know you and your heart deeper and better. For your glory and the good of the world, we pray. Amen. How do you think the world feels? How do you feel that God might feel about food wastage? How do we feel God might feel about food wastage? You know, in, the, in, in Australia right now, they estimate that this year we will spend $36 billion on food we will never eat. That we will just waste $36 billion on food we will never eat. This means, friends, that the amount of food that you, we will waste this year takes 2,600 gigaliters of water or five times the size of volume of the Sydney Harbour. The size of land it takes to produce this kind of food is over the size of Victoria. And we will never eat it because we will waste it. And the reality is, is that the world at the moment produces 1.5 times the amount of food we need for everyone to eat. And we're wasting it. Starvation could end. How might God feel? And this is so important to us because we've got to realize that when, when we don't see the kids starving, God knows their cries. And he asks, who will cry with them? 
When we hear of children making clothes in sweat factories and we think, who cares if I buy it on Amazon? I don't know and don't care. Do you think God cares? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Guy who was was an advisor to Jimmy Carter's presidency says this, I used to think that the top environmental problems was biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environment problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. We scientists just don't know how to do that. No, they don't. But let me tell you who does. His name is Jesus. Jesus transforms the human heart. Before he wants us to care about his world, he wants us to surrender our souls to him and say, start with me. The great gardener who wants you to garden his world on his behalf wants to first garden your heart and take care of your soul. Friends, the first thing I want you to remember today is this. The earth is God's and everything in it. He cared about it so much, he gave it to his favorite creation, humanity, to cultivate and steward and care. And sin has broken that deeply and profoundly. Our greed and our consumption. We don't talk about greed and gluttony enough, but they are not a blessing to the world. The gospel, friends, should not just transform us, but lead us to be transformed in how we live in God's creation, caretaking His creation. We should want to caretake the environment so well, it blesses future generations to come, that my son might see dolphins in the surf, might breathe clean air, because we did this well. So let me finish today. How should we care? Sandy Richter says it simply like this. And if you remember one line from today, someone says, what did Michael preach about? Say this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, we use creation for our need, not for our greed. Let me leave you with three really practical ideas. First one is this, radical gratitude. If we could celebrate and enact radical gratitude, it would transform our world. There are some of you right now who see someone else driving a car bigger than yours. And you long for it, even though you have a perfectly fine car right now. What would it look like for you to be grateful for what we have? What would it look like for us to be consuming less and grateful for more? It would shift everything. And one way we can do that is, number two, we can celebrate Sabbath. Sabbath is every seventh day the Christians pull back from consumption and lean into cultivation. We worship God. I try on my Sabbath not to buy anything, clothes, or anything that would would consume the world. And instead, spend time with family, spend time with God, spend time in His creation, spend time cultivating a habit and a rhythm. Why? Because that's what Sabbath looks like. And I want the world to be blessed at least one day a week that it would have rest from me. And the third thing is this, vote with your money. More important than your political vote is where we spend our dollars. Most of the clothes I wear right now, if I'm honest, were made in in a sweat factory more often than not. Your phones were made by child labor. That's just the way phones are these days. But we could actually make a decision that maybe one of the things we buy every week isn't. We can actually, I'm going to research this. I'm going to spend time because God hears the cries of the children. God hears the cry of the slave. God hears the cries and so will I. So will I. That's so important. I'm going to buy sustainable groceries. Why? Because God cares and so do I. I'm actually going to research what does my consumption do to the world and shift how I use single-use plastics. Why? Because God cares, and so do I. Friends, this isn't an argument about protesting coal mines or going and strapping ourselves to trees. I think those kind of things are incredibly complex, and they're not easy solutions to complex problems. But we can start with me. Here's how I know, and here's why. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead in John chapter 20, 
Do you want to know how he was first seen by Mary? What she mistook him for? He wasn't a fisherman. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't even a resurrected savior. The word says, Mary mistook him for a gardener. I just wonder if that wasn't accidental. I wonder if Jesus goes, nah, created Adam to be the first gardener. He kind of botched it. But now's the new creation, the new Israel, the new humanity. I've come again. But before we garden this world, let me garden your soul. Let me weed out the sin and resurrect this thing back to life. Maybe just maybe it's what we need today as a gardener. Have you allowed Jesus Christ to start with your heart? Because for the world to be blessed by your selflessness, first we need to be transformed out of our selfishness, out of our greed. And some of you will come today, and when I talk about these things, you're like, I've got that. Can I just let you know the safest place for that is the foot of Jesus Christ. Don't go home and start a recycling system without actually starting to deal with the initial problem. It's in here. Gluttony, greed, selfishness starts in here. And we can't transform it on our own. We need a good Savior. So two ways to respond today. Simply this. First of all, I want to ask if you would repent. In a moment, I'm going to ask us all to repent. And would you join me in that if you're a Christian? Saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to do this better. And first of all, I want to ask those of you who haven't known the gardener yet, it's time. It's time for the weeds of your heart to be pulled up and God to resurrect something. But to do that, we must submit our hearts to Him and say, I believe you're my Lord and my Savior. You died for my sins. And I want to follow you into life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Friends, some of you have come in today consumed by greed, consumed by selfishness, consumed by gluttony, consumed by things you never wanted for your life. And I just want to let you know this, that God has come into your world today as a gardener to say, I will make all things new if you want me to. Friends, if you want to repent and you want to turn to Him, if you want to be renewed and restored by the love of Jesus Christ, if you want to know the good gardening work of Christ for the first time, would you just raise your hands wherever you are right now? Would you raise your hand? If you want to respond to Him, thank you so much. Just keep your hand raised to me for a moment longer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. See you. I'm going to pray for that gentleman. Raise his hand. And I'm going to pray with you all. Would you all repeat these words after me as we join together in responding to the work of Christ? Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we can do better now. I just heard Scott. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I need you to garden my soul. I repent and turn to you. Show me life and life to the full. Be my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you for those who responded. And maybe those who didn't raise their hands, but we've responded in our hearts. May you continue the good work you've begun in us unto completion. In Jesus' name. And all across this room, why don't you stand to your feet and just stretch out your arms in front of you today. Stretch out your arms if you want to join me in repenting. Lord Jesus, I come before you humbly today. I'm sorry for the moments I've joked about plastic. When I've flippantly littered or rubbished, just thrown it away, not realizing that I've been given a sacred duty. 
I'm sorry for the moments where I've bought things without actually thinking about what it means. When I've consumed without being consumed by your love. Father, we repent. Lord, we can't stop all the ills of this world, but we can start with us. Lead us in your way. That our, our friends who aren't yet Christians would look at us and go, I want to be a part of that kingdom. That kingdom cares. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Friends, we're about to sing a song called So Will I. And this song is just a moment where we join in with creation saying, for stars cry out in worship, so will I. Let's worship together.